Hello and thank you once again for joining me, Robert Barclay, for another episode of Inside Jobs, the podcast for in-house agencies, about in-house agencies, and brought to you by the In-House Agency Forum, or IHAF, in partnership with Express KCS, who help in-house agencies do more through outsourced production. This episode, we get to meet an in-house agency leader with the most incredible backstory. The first part of her career was as a journalist, where she got to cover some of the most significant and well-known news stories of our times. In large part, we know about them precisely because of her work. Harriet's story is specifically interesting, as she doesn't come from an agency or creative background, and nor does she support the work of marketers. As we're going to hear, it's her huge exposure to a range of cultures that informs the way she works with her internal customers. So I started by asking Harriet, what does she do at the IMF? I am the head of the IMF's in-house creative agency, which is called Creative Solutions. Uh, and I get, my official job title is Division Chief. I think you told me you work in Washington, D.C., is that right? Uh, that is correct, yes. But I don't think you're a native Washingtonian, are you? You pick that up pr- pretty quickly. I'm a mm-hmm. fellow Brit. Well, I can understand every word you're saying, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is why. We'll, we'll conduct this in British English. <laughs> Shall we? <laughs> Tell us more. Where are you from? So I'm actually from uh, Chorley in Lancashire in the northwest of England, for those who aren't familiar with the geography of the of the British Isles. Well, they normally say, uh, I've spent many years traveling and people say, where are you from? And I'll say, have you heard of Manchester United? And they're like, yeah. Ah, so Of course. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yes, they will have heard of it. In fact, probably keen supporters of Manchester United if they further away from Manchester they come. Is that not right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm, so they say. So you're brought up in, Ch- in Chorley. And uh, did you, from an early age, uh, study graphics, creative? Uh, uh, did, you, did you follow a path that has consistently led to where you are or, or what? Uh, so I guess no to both of those questions. I wasn't brought up in Chorley. I was, um, my parents actually lived in South Korea uh, when I was born. Wow. My mum uh, flew back on her own because my dad had to stay at work uh, to have me and then flew back with me about three weeks later. So I spent the first part <laughs> of my life uh, in South Korea and then we moved to uh, a couple of other places. We lived in the Congo for a while and we lived in Saudi for a while before my family then actually settled in Derbyshire, which is the the next book one county from uh, from Lancashire. And it's really only now as an adult when I've been traveling that I really appreciated the sort of the, I guess, the sense of adventure and courageousness that my parents had to to do the things they did when, when I was little. But your formative years were spent back in England, though, in Derbyshire, yeah? Yes, they, uh, they actually moved to a, we all moved to a farm in the kind of a ro- remote part of Derbyshire on the Cheshire border. Yeah. So I, uh, I spent my, my formative years there on the, on the outskirts of Manchester. So, uh, so tell us about uh, the world of marketing and advertising and how that encroached on you then. Do you, do you have any recollection of kind of... Uh, how uh, advertising happened and how it affected you even even back then so when i look back um i i am in the i didn't when i was at university uh, or before i went to university advertising was something that i absolutely wanted to get into there was a bit of a a kind of struggle my parents wanted me to be a lawyer i wanted to be an artist um i just i decided to do a degree in um i wanted to do something in communication but also something in psychology Mm-hmm. So I chose a course at the University of Liverpool, which was a combination of the bo- of the bo- both of those topics. They were 
Um, there weren't many courses like that at the time. In fact, there was only two universities to choose from, and I, and I actually mm. went went for Liverpool. Um, but then having graduated... I then didn't go into that industry at all. I went into journalism in a and, and took a completely between, different you, tangent. You did a master's in criminology, though. I see. I, I, I see in between. I did, and what, uh, what inspired that? So I was working as a journalist for for Sky News, and mm. I uh, got chatting with a uh, a professor of criminology, David Wilson, and we were talking about my psychology uh, undergraduate and. Yeah. Um, he was running a psychology. He was running a criminology master's program, and this was whilst I was working. And he sort of said, "Well, why don't I think you'd be, you know, I think you'd be uh, be good to do this." You, 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 you know, we were working on a. He was he was what we call a presenter friend. So there yeah. was a big murder case happening of which this the um, the news channel was covering, and yeah. he said, "Why don't you why don't you give it a go?" And I said, "I can't possibly do that. I've got a full time job." And he said, well, you know, see if you can see if they'll release you. It's only one day a week for term time, which didn't really uh, amount to that much. So I did the master's in my in my spare huh. time. So that was so I, I sorry, you were a mature student then. And um, but that led on. Right. You didn't stop studying. I didn't because then I, I, I graduated with a distinction. And he said, well, the university will pay if you fancy continuing your studies as a Ph.D., there's not many people who are doing what you're doing. So then I continued it on as a as a PhD, as a as a part-time course. And your PhD was in again criminology then? It's criminology and um and media. So it's uh it, it's wow. it's basically um a combination of the things that I had got to be interested in, which really is about people's behaviour and what makes people act in the way that they do. Do you had been with the press association? Is that where you cut your teeth in journalism? I actually started in journalism on the local paper. After I'd left university, I got the first job that I possibly could, which was uh, uh, I spent two soul-destroying weeks selling uh, stationery and thought this is definitely, this is paying the bills that on my student loan I needed to pay off, but this is mm. definitely not the life for me. So mm. I was flicking through the, the High Peak Reporter at my parents' house one one weekend yeah. and there was an advert for a reporter of which I had yeah. absolutely no qualifications for whatsoever but thought it sounded like a fun thing to do so for some reason the editor decided that he was going to give me a shot and have an interview and I promised him that I would do my best I'd work for free for two weeks oh. and if he thought I could do it he would give me the job and he he, he not only gave me the job but he then had me go on a, a kind of a what they call then a block release course a, a go for eight weeks to study at uh, the the College of uh, Media Studies and, and go and mm. learn how to be a journalist. So I off I went and, and, and did that. And then from there, I, I moved to another local paper and then I and then I got myself a gig at the, the Press Association. So fascinating. Were you, were you a regional reporter then or, or was it national? So I started off um, as a regional reporter in the in the northwest patch just at a time when a uh, a then little known doctor called Harold Shipman oh. um started to uh, one mm. by one murder his patients and Goodness. it became the biggest the, you know the biggest news story for mm. uh, for a long long time so i can It was right in your patch right in my patch in a in a small town called Hyde in Cheshire mm. and uh that really sort of propelled my career i would say because mm. The entire world's uh, news media ca came into town, and the press association had a very uh, front side seat to all of that. 
that career at the Press Association, which was uh, written media, really, wasn't it, led you to Sky? It was. I moved from um, from the Manchester Patch down to the Press Association's London head office as a news editor, and then from there I moved to uh, Sky News as a as a as a field producer. So I was one of the people when a story broke, I would go out with a with a, a, a reporter and a news crew and uh, and set out the reporting from from the ground where the story was happening. Clearly enjoying that, I imagine. I loved it. Yeah, I look back and I and I just feel so privileged at the things that I had that I got to experience. Um, yeah. I travelled to Afghanistan with the the British Army. I was embedded with the British Army there. We we that was one of the most rewarding things I think that I'd done. So this is absolutely this is riveting, and it must have been extraordinary. If a professional journalist, these are you know you're getting involved in amazing stories and. And really at the centre of things. But something must have happened towards the end of 2012 then, because you, you finished at Sky and and moved on to uh, working for a charity, a major charity. I did. I think, uh, well, a couple of things happened. One was the fact that I'd done many of the, I guess I'd, I'd covered a lot of the big stories and felt like I, on a personal level, I needed a, a bit of a a change and it was and it was kind of clear to me that there was something that happened I'd got the call and rather than the the normal wow this is exciting I'm going to who knows when I'm going to be home I'm going to pack my bag and see what you know see where this story takes me it was a mm. oh I have dinner plans for Thursday and maybe I'm maybe I've spent too long chasing around the world and I need a bit of a, a bit of a change but also I'd learned so many different skills um, and I wanted to, although I've, I've always felt that, I mean, journalism is just so important. It's, it's even more important now. It's absolutely crucial that we have a, a freedom of speech and a free press. But I felt that I could put those skills that I'd learned um, to good use. And it was actually just, I was approached, there was a, a job going of head of media at the, um, the INGO Oxfam. And mm. I just thought, well, why not? I'll go meet them and see what I think of them. They can see what they think of me. Um, and that that turned out then that I ended up making the decision to to leave. It was a really hard decision because I absolutely loved my life as a journalist. But I thought that I'd be able to put my skills that I'd learned into, in, into good use in terms of Oxfam's mission. I got to experience things that I would just feel so, so privileged and lucky to have done. Like, such as what? Well, I went to um, one of the places I went to was um, the is West Africa during the height of the Ebola crisis. I went to South Sudan as the uh, civil war was on, and I, I I think the most rewarding was when I went to um, Damascus and travelled mm. into Syria to to go and sort of cover, sort of take pictures and to um, handle the communications of the chief executive meeting the the government to work out how Oxfam could best help the people who were who were under and still are living in such dreadful conditions. But again, there was a, another sort of uh, shift, I suppose, it seems, uh, after Oxfam uh, about five years ago. What, what, what happened then? So I'd actually made the decision to move to Washington for personal reasons. My, my partner got a job here and yeah. it, was a, it was a really tough decision to make because, you know, again, I was really enjoying what I was doing at Oxfam, but it was, uh, you know, it, something that we decided to do. And then I got a telephone call from an old colleague who said, oh, I hope you don't mind, but I've given your name to a headhunter. They were looking for, for, for people who could be recommended. And I was like, I didn't really pay much attention to that. And went, oh, okay, so that's fine. You haven't really fine, been job um, hunting at this point. I, just I hadn't because, because at that point I was, I was in my final stages of completing my 
PhD. And I was really looking forward to just finishing it. It was something mm. that had been hanging over me for six yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I'd, I know what it's like. I'd yeah, written the, absolutely. you know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of written the thesis and thought, Phew, I've done that in my, my experience as a 24 hour news journalist to then have to have to write yeah. tens of thousands of words. Uh, it was quite the turnaround for me. So I sort of yeah. like thought this was done. I handed it in. And then my, um, my professors were like, well, I'm sorry, but you haven't included this. You need to change this. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I thought I was over this. Uh, so mm. I was looking forward to a bit of a, a bit of a break. But then the phone rang and I was told that there was this great opportunity, but there was one problem with it. And that would be that it was in Washington, D.C. And had I considered living in Washington? So <laughs> I just thought, well, that's complete fate. Are you serious? So that was so that, that was that that that, that, that of happened. all the places in all yep. the world. Your partner was going to D.C. Yep. and then a job offer comes from exactly. D.C. Completely coincidentally. Completely coincidentally. So I thought, well. It's got to be something. I'm not actually a believer in fate or coincidence, but I think there was something, there was something going on. So I, uh, I was like, well, you know, I'll see, I'll see how it, uh, I'll see how that pans out. And again, not really giving it much thought. So that was the headhunter for the for the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. The IMF was very forward thinking into kind of reimagining its multimedia team. So it was really about changing a the multimedia team. Uh, who was it, which was a largely sort of a kind of a production house to really uh, making the most of the value add of, of creative thinking. And over the last four and a half years, we've kind of transformed quite dramatically from the from the in-house team that we were. Okay, so let's describe that journey then, because you do call yourself an in, in-house agency. So you clearly recognize yourself as something that is not just a document services entity or division within the business. So what what, what is it that makes you an agency? So we've transformed from way, way back. Uh, I mean, the IMF is um, over 75 years old and way back the team sort of came into being as a place where people could get their visa pictures taken. And then latterly, some that we're, we were very print orientated. So we'd mm. have the design team would be doing kind of covers of kind of books and that sort of thing. And then over the years, the, the, the demand for those sort of typical agency services would increase and the team sort of grew up uh kind of organically adding different disciplines this along the way this was before yeah this was before my mm -hmm. time but really what it what has happened the shift from being the the production shop of people coming and saying hey we just need this uh can you make this specific video to actually helping the the different departments uh, of the IMF think through how best to communicate uh, visually the messages um, that they want to uh, to do. So for example, a big part of our work, as I said, is the annual and spring meetings where there's we, we do a whole suite of uh, collateral from the environmental designs that go on the side of the buildings and in the mm. event spaces, the, the videos that start some of the seminars, the, the choreography of the seminars. I mean, we've had a big shift this year because everything has been virtual. So that has been a Hmm. a big learning curve for us um, and we really guide the um, the the internal clients through through the steps really to how to make their event a success how to make their the publication a success tell me a bit about who your clients are within the IMF and um, what what drives them and uh, and and how you interact with them well ultimately I mean our our clients are the membership of the IMF which is 190 uh, countries uh, we've just gone up to 190 and Andorra has 
has just joined us. Welcome, welcome, <laughs> yes, and always late to the party. Well, the but we work with the different departments. So the the IMF is sort of structured in terms of there's functional departments and there's area departments. So for example, you know, one thing is the um, say the Africa department wants to hold a big kind of a high level meeting. And we would help think through all of the different bits of design. Now, how does that interaction happen? Do you have account managers who go out and work with the with the Africa division at this point, or do they come to you and uh, you deal with them, or, or what? How, how does that work? I don't know how many projects you have on the go at any one time either. So we literally, I mean, we have uh, over the course of the year, we literally have thousands of projects. We 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 get through a lot of things. Um, we have uh, a tiering system, and uh, because some of the work still is transactional, so if you if a client perhaps wants a poster or an email template or something for an event, they would enter, they would go to our portal on the intranet and, and make a request. Um, some things they would be able to be given some tools for it to be self-service. If it's something that's going to be a big thing and touch different parts of the of the creative team, um, then that would be something where we'd get a project manager involved who would then who would then coordinate okay. it, and we and we're just branching into the the sort of more traditional account management, and that's one of the changes that we're kind of we're, we're looking into at the moment to make sure that those relationships uh, that we we find out as upstream as possible in terms of what the client's plans are and how best we yeah. can we can serve them. Okay, so when you're talking about clients, though, as you say, your your, your clients are the members. Are these people who work for the IMF, but they're posted in all these different countries? No, or, so or, 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 we're we're very we're 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 very centralized. So the the departments are all based in DC. So um, I see. They are. I mean, the ultimate we ultimately work for the members, but um, our immediate clients are, are our internal departments. I see. So you're bringing a, now you're introducing a, a sort of creative branded center that they can come to to not just have could you run me off five copies of this but more question of i need to i need to have this event and i need to inform people and you can help them with all aspects of that now and with branding with creative ideas and so on that's a, that's absolutely it i mean we we it, as part of the creative team um we have we have a, a design team we have uh we look after the brand we have video we have photography and we also have the the avian broadcast setup so we have a a, a tv broadcast studio mm-hmm. in fact we have two studios because not only are we doing the the sort of the create what you would think of traditionally creative work but also we do the um we make the online learning. So a, lot, a large part of the IMF's work is also how to kind of help our member countries and the uh, MOOC courses. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's all done as well. And we, we, we well, then so look after the branding and help with the marketing of, of those things. I, I have, um, in fact, I have some clients who are agencies working within uh, non-commercial enterprises, shall we say, not who, who don't report to marketers and work with marketers. And it's, it's a very different kind of relationship uh, in my experience. And I, I'd be interested in your view on this because the marketers uh, in a commercial organization are wanting to ensure that the in-house agency can raise their game sufficiently to the level of their expectation, if not higher, in terms of quality and you know creativity and so on. But those working for professional associations and the like are generally involved in actively helping their consultants or the partners or whatever raise their game so that the, the, the creative drive comes from the in-house agency rather than from externally. Is, is that how you see yourself there? Yes, I, I I believe that would be a good. Uh, I guess that's a good definition in the sense that we're the we. It's different for us because we we are the 
the the main creative uh, kind of agenda setters, and, yeah. and perhaps sometimes yeah. our our drive for higher level creative sometimes may be too high, um, wanting to do too many new new things. It's but not it's, core to your customers' kind of value sets, where in a commercial company it is. Right, that's the difference. So presumably, you're having you you are educating people along the way as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we've actually started. I mean, one of the things that we we're, we're big deli- uh, we're big believers in sort of design thinking methodology, as as many other folks in this industry are. So one mm. of the things that we found helpful is actually to to run some courses within the IMF to help uh, kind of educate people as to those different methodologies. So when it comes to huh. wanting to look to see how best to solve a solve a problem that they they have those design thinking skills to come to the come to the sessions with uh, that sounds very challenging you're doing these courses uh are the rewards there are you seeing the results we are and and i think that i, I and i think the thing is that we all have the same objective so we we all want to further the mission of the fund i think it's also different when your when your sort of mission isn't about a dollar figure bottom line it's about whether you're achieving what the organization is mm. is setting out to do. And it is hugely rewarding when you find that having you're influencing how, how people are thinking differently and also how different things can, the, the outcome can be when you go about it in a different way. Do you work with a, with a chargeback internally? Do people pay? Do they see, do they, do they kind of feel the value of what you do because they have to pay for it? Or, or is you, are you a, a service that they can just dip into at will? So we are a we're a we're a centrally funded service. So so we are essentially free to to the rest of the organisation. I mean that brings about that has benefits and it also kind of brings about uh, challenges because if something's free, then you tend to use it as you like, and our and our resources yeah. aren't uh, aren't infinite. So it, it brings about how do you how do you manage that uh, resource allocation? And how do you manage that? Well, we have to stick to what the priorities of the, I mean, it's very much about trying to prioritize what the core, the, the overarching core mission is and that and that shift. So it does lead to difficult uh, conversations that we, we perhaps can't support one project because we're having to put those resources into, a, into another project. And of course, with the pandemic, everything has shifted very. So you managed to make a behavior change somewhat with this education. You're nudging people in the right direction, I guess overall yeah and one i mean one of the things that we're working on at the moment in terms of nudging people in the right direction we've we've been tasked with thinking about how people you know how people are going to behave when they when they get back to the office and how do you yeah. how do you keep people from you know we haven't seen each other near on 9 months and probably won't for some more months to come so how do yeah. you remind people when they're sort of fatigued by the social distancing and washing your yes. hands? And yes. so one of the things that we've, we've been helping the institution with is just thinking through how do you sort of use behavioral insights with your communi- visual communications to, you know, to make people do what they're, what we need them to you do. You need a psychologist for that, surely. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, the effect of lockdown and working from home, and as you so beautifully put it, working from home fatigue. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's a recognized condition, but everyone knows what it is. And and yeah, there will be changes in people and and reactions to uh, the strangeness of of working again with people. So yeah, I'm sure you have some insights into that. Yes, it's it's uh, you know just even I mean it goes beyond the the how do people behave when they get back to the office, but how how is their how, you know our lives have changed so so dramatically so quickly in yeah. in the last nine ten months that 
You know, there were things I think if particularly with my team and my team have just done such an amazing job of turning things around in this difficult environment. How I think if people had come to us and said, we need you to to build a completely different way of doing virtual events and you have three weeks to do it, we'd have been like, yeah, right. When do you think? Well, if they hadn't given you the time scale and said, (laughs) Harriet, we'd like you to think about virtual events. How long do you need? And you'd probably say, well, I could probably come up with something in about six months. Exactly. uh... Yeah. Well, you obviously managed to do that. How many people have you got working for you, by the way, in the team? The the, the whole team um, is uh, is is around fifty people. We scale up and down for the ahead of the annual and spring meetings, mm-hmm. um, but that includes everybody from the uh, from all of the different the different disciplines. Mm. And you scale up with freelancers, or you have sort of stringers, or is it not stringers? But you know. Yeah, we have we have a bit of both. We work with a staffing company who are able to provide mm. different different resources, and we're also we we work with individual freelance contributors. I mean, I think mm. one thing that is positive that's going to come out of all of this is the is less reliance on the office environment. So, yeah. you know, previously when we'd be looking for for talent, we'd be looking in the DC the DC yep. area, and now yeah, that's uh, now that's gone. And and because we have now got all of our folks set up working from home, and and we've mm. had to develop different you know different workflows and things like that to accommodate that. You know, if we have somebody who's out in you know out in California or in Europe or Asia or wherever they might mm. be we can now make the most of that. So are you looking forward to getting back to the office in a, something a little more akin to normality or are you quite happy with the, uh, the work from home situation? I miss I miss um, seeing the people in the office. I miss the, yeah. the fact that, you know, people would kind of wander past the, the door and say hello and we could chat about something yeah. that's non-work related. And there's and, value in that, right? Yeah. Professional value in that. Absolutely. That you're missing out on. Especially with the, with I think, in our business, to be able to, to have those conversations that may spark some inspiration about, you know, what somebody's doing. People walk past each other's desk and they're like, hey, what's that? And have you thought about this? And so that interaction, I think, is something that we haven't, we've tried, we've we very much tried to, to sort of recreate that with, um, you know, with different means of communication. But we haven't that's the thing we haven't cracked to be able to do from from home yes no absolutely and uh, who knows whether that's ever going to be possible to be honest and it, it maybe it's it will be a blend is that what you're anticipating a blend of working from home and office base from now on i think a blend i, I think for me personally i think a blend would be good because there are times when actually to be able to just have the solitude of getting if i've got a, a report to write or something that i really need mm. to kind of close the door and think about then I think that's mm. uh it will be beneficial that we we're not back um sort of five days everybody back five days a week so um what have you been doing though Harriet when you haven't been uh, <laughs> trying to run a 50 strong in-house agency from home during lockdown do you have uh, other interests and, and hobbies are you reading anything interesting you want to share I have been this sounds terribly sad but I think during the lockdown I've actually been doing more work than than <laughs> you're not alone than, don't worry than before i feel like i feel like when we um when we think about whether we're working from home or whether i'm actually living in the office i have felt many many times that i've that i've been uh that i've been living in the in the office this is the problem though isn't it the blurring that this has caused between real life and work life surely uh yeah it's it's, it's interfered with people's private lives because that demarcation has suddenly gone right it has and there's and i and i guess that in my life before lockdown, when I wasn't in work, I was I was out doing things. I might I might be out stop partying. I well, imagine, right? <laughs> more likely I out walking or try and find some countryside somewhere. 
Mm. but then there would invariably be no 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 cell phone reception so i would actually get that um yeah. get that get that break i think we're going to have to stop it there harriet but this has been a fascinating insight into an amazing life you've done more things in your very few years than many have done in a lifetime but it's uh, yeah traveled all over the world and worked for these amazing organizations and helped so many people along the way and uh, obviously running a very tight ship there at the imf too well thank you very much thank you for thank you for having me on if people want to contact you directly harriet or find out more about uh, the imf how can they get hold of you uh, so they can, uh, they're more than welcome to, to, to just drop me a, an email at uh, htolpert.imf.org or they can find me on Twitter as well, Harriet Tolpert on Twitter. Wasn't that an amazing story? Harriet lived in South Korea and the Congo before settling in England prior to a career that took her to Afghanistan, Jordan, Syria and I'm sure many other places besides. Her work at the IMF means that she needs to work with an incredibly diverse range of people, all of whom uh, she needs to educate into the mysteries of marketing and brand. I want to thank her for her time and candor talking about her work and also to IHAF, specifically Emily Foster and my producer Pratik Shravastava and Prerna Chopra for the editing work. If you've not heard this podcast before, then a very warm welcome to Inside Jobs. Do take the chance to visit our website at insidejobspodcast.org to see the ever-growing back catalogue of conversations with creative leaders. You can also sign up to my extremely intermittent IJ newsletter. I do try to reply to any email in person as well, so keep the feedback coming. And of course, feel free to link in with me on LinkedIn. Also, if you like what you hear, why not recommend us to a friend and maybe even post a comment and a review to iTunes. Till the next time. Hey.